and welcome to Outrage and Optimism. I'm Tom Rivett Karnak. I'm Christiana Figueres. And I'm Paul Dickinson. This week, we talk about the latest IEA report and its strong message to the world on the path to net zero. We speak to Jens Stoltenberg, Secretary General of NATO, and we have music from Milky Chance. Thanks for being here. I normally try and give some kind of introduction when we start these podcasts, but this week I'm just going to hand it over to Christiana because I think Christiana, you have something you're kind of excited about. I am so something excited. I'm going to say something first and stop you because you can't say anything, and it's over to me. I'm glad I got. I'm impressed I got that sentence in actually. I am so excited. This is a big one, listener. I am popping out of my buttons here. I am so excited. An energy policy report has been released. A who? No, I'm only joking. Don't Please try and steal the thunder. This is a this is serious. This is this a big is serious, deal. This is serious a big moment. Deal. Yeah. Uh, listeners, pay attention. Cup of tea, uh, comfortable chair. Christiana, you have the floor. Thank you, Paul. So, some people will know that the International Energy Agency, headquartered in Paris, is the world's top authority on energy, and now on energy transition. Some people may also know that the IEA has been famously uh, underestimating the pace and the scale of the energy transition for years. And they put out the World Energy Outlook, which is the most authoritative read that you can possibly have every year on energy. Now, read by everyone in oil and gas, apart from anything else, right? It's a big thing in yes, oil and gas. Yes, read well, well it, certainly oil and gas, yeah. but everyone else who is yeah. in the energy, um, particularly electricity part, but also transport. And also, perhaps not the whole thing, but the executive summary or the policy uh, summary for policymakers in uh, different terms is actually read by probably every single minister of energy of the world. Because most people who are in the energy sector take their cues from the IEA. Now, we've been working with the IEA to encourage them uh, to actually be a little bit more ambitious in their reports because they have consistently been underestimating, as I say, what can be done and therefore, from my perspective, condemning us to um, such a delay in the energy transition that we would just not be able to address climate change if we followed the pathways that they put out for us. Now, here is the big news of today. Ta-da. The IEA, ta-da, ta-da, drum roll. <laughs> the IEA has actually put out a report that charts out the path toward 1.5 degrees, not two degrees, 1.5 degrees, net zero by 2050, with no overshoot. What do I mean by overshoot? By That is included in many models that we actually emit more than we can, and then we have to bring it down. This one is a safe path with no overshoot. It actually says that we can get to net zero, that the technical problems are soluble, that net zero in the energy uh, industry and the sector can actually be done without even relying on land offsets. That just blows my mind. And they put out 
numbers that for the participation of renewable energy system that are actually consistent with the most ambitious analysis out there in the 70 to 74% um, that we will be moving to. So it is just amazing what they have done. They also say, as though that were not enough, they also say that net zero is actually better for the world, that there are more jobs in total, there are more local jobs, there's higher GDP, there is lower energy costs as a share of GDP, and of course, about 3 million lives per annum saved from pollution-linked deaths. They do say it's not going to be easy and we need governments to drive change, and that is their main message. They do say that this is possible, but governments need to enact uh, the policies needed for driving the um, change. But drumroll <laughs> again, they send the message to the oil and gas industry, in fact, to all fossil fuels, that basically, thanks very much, as we've been saying on this podcast, thanks very much for what you did in the past century, but this century does not belong to you. They go as far as saying oil, and coal sales have peaked, gas sales will shortly peak, and we don't need any more new coal developments, any more new oil developments, any no more new gas developments. I cannot believe what my eyes are reading in this report. And it's not a drum roll, Christiana. It's a chorus. So if you'll join me, please. Oh, no. Dum, 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 dum. It's wonderful what they said today at the IEA. It's wonderful what they said today at the IEA. You can cut the capex. You can finish looking more. We've got all the fossil fuels we need. Paul, have you been rehearsing that? Or is that genuinely extemporaneous? It's, I made that up on the spur of the moment. Once again, my agent, you know, this kind of talent, it's rare. It's rare. Amazing. Not well. The news is amazing. The singing is, of course, a different story. Paul, do you want to come in with a comment? I've got so a the, few questions. Yeah, these people are not mucking around. Like, this is really big stuff. So I'm like... I've always known about the IEA. They're a little bit like the Misterons for anyone who's of a certain age or, or you know, these kind of occult groups of, of sort of the, the Illuminati. Like, who are the IEA, right? Okay, so they were established in 1974 in response to the oil shock then. And they are representing a very large group of energy ministers from uh, about 30 countries. Um, you may wonder how it is that... Uh, the you know the the particularly oil producing countries signed off on the support well they're not actually you know saudi arabia isn't a member of the iea uh, russia isn't a member of the iea but um basically most of the biggest economies in the world are members of the iea uh, and it's headquartered out of the oecd in paris it's got similar kind of membership and these ministers together have sort of said well we came up with over 400 milestones and one of them is there is no need for new oil, gas, and coal development, which includes no need for oil and gas exploration investments. Mm. Now, if you follow the logic of that, something just absolutely massive has happened in global industry. Because, and I mean, you know, let's just pause at the magnitude of this. There are enormous industries um, that are involved in exploration and production of oil and gas. And there are incredible sums of money spent on that. I've got just one figure from IHS Market saying that uh, the figure in uh, 2019 was 1.4 trillion. It fell to 1.2 trillion in 2020. 
I mean, of course, a little bit of that capital expenditure is replacing kind of rusty nuts and bolts, but the great bulk of it is going and finding new oil and gas. And if you follow the logic of this report, that industry kind of stops now. And we were discussing this earlier, Cristiano, and you said, I, I said, well, you know, how can we persuade the boards that it should stop? And you said, and I think quite correctly, that it is looking like it's irresponsible to spend shareholders' funds uh, on capital expenditure to explore for new oil and gas. And if you if that's true, it's just a different world. So can I just, I'd, I'd, and I'd love to just understand, because of course, for the casual observer of this space, and I'm sure many of our listeners are paying close attention to the energy space, but just help. Wait, Tom, are you just about to rain on our parade? No, 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 here? no. I'm going to ask you a question because I want to understand. Let him try, Chris. No, no, no. no. So lots of, lots of people come out with reports that say no new oil and gas is necessary, etc. But uh, tell me if this is right. The IEA develops global models from which governments make their policy. They look at those yep. models, they take them, and then yep. they make policy. And so the IEA doing this is kind of almost now, because that's happened, many governments around the world will look at that and they are likely to change their policies over time because this model says that this is the way global energy is going to go. Have I understood that correctly? Well, yes and no. Um, the IEA will tell you that they are not prescriptive, hmm. that they are not calling the future, that they are looking at projections into the future based on past behavior, past um, in, in industry investments, et cetera, et cetera. But we have been arguing for years to the IEA that although that is their intent, the opposite actually happens because they yes. are such a powerful influencing institution on energy that although they, let's say, objectively take their data and project it into the future, because all of those projectors in the past have actually been to the advantage, let me say, or to um, or giving a lot of space to fossil fuels to the in the quo. energy sector yeah. in the status quo, then it becomes a self-fulfilling right. prophecy. It creates the future, of so, course. Yeah. So I, I, Minister of Energy, you know, read this and say, oh, wow, there's a lot of space still for renewable, uh, for fossil fuels, therefore I'm going to invest. And it becomes that self-fulfilling enslavement to these fossil fuels that were great last century, but no longer. So we have been arguing with the IEA for years now saying, look, you have such a powerful influence on to actually create self-fulfilling prophecies that can you actually put the prophecy out that moves us to net zero, that moves us to renewable energy, because then that will be the self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah. And that is what they have done now. And I love, I mean, um, so you say you've been encouraging the IEA. A close friend of ours who saw some of the emails that you sent the IEA described them as cruise missiles that were sent into the building. So they were they were they were quite direct <laughs> forms of encouragement. So so great, and it's led to a good outcome. But one one question there is: given that, what do you think is happening in energy ministries around the world now that this report has landed? Do you think that people are looking at this and going, "Oh my God, the future is going to be yes. different to what we thought. We better get yes. on it and figure out what this means to us." Yes, I do think there's a lot of oh my god going on today, um, and in fact, even yesterday because uh, the executive summary was sort of sent around yesterday. But I think there is quite a bit of uh, total surprise that the IEA has taken uh, such an 
a forward-looking position on where all of us know we have to go. And not only are they saying we have to go there, but rather they're, they're also saying, and furthermore, it's doable, it's good for us, and we can do this. That is an amazing turnaround for the IEA. And I think very unexpected, very unexpected. They have been working on this uh, Net Zero report for quite a while. They have been doing extensive consultations. Fatih Birol has been convening ministers of energy for months now and doing extensive consultations. And this is the end result. It really is... Um, it's mind-blowing. It is mind-blowing that they have changed their message so radically. <laughs> do, do you ever get a little bit scared? It's kind of like, I mean, for example, uh, you know, I'm in the UK and it's like really cold and, you know, and it's like it's meant to be summer. And I'm thinking like, maybe the Gulf Stream's shut down. Maybe it's never going to be warm again. Like maybe these energy ministers have seen some kind of terrible new science, like, and they've suddenly got with the program. But whatever the reason for this dramatic action, it's, it's, it's got to be good for all the reasons you say, Christiana. And congratulations to you uh, for your leadership and for your effective lobbying. And just one thing that uh, Fatih Burrell said, that the, the director of the IEA said, those countries whose economies are relying on oil and gas revenues will face huge challenges. And that is a fact. But that is a the, fact. on the positive note, again, quoting the IEA, their pathways to a brighter future bring a historic surge in clean energy investment. Now, think about that for a minute, creating millions of new jobs. If there's one message from this is that there is sort of kind of infinity money now for investment in new energy. And, you know, if you were thinking, I wonder if I should go out and build that very large offshore wind farm or that 40 kilometer solar dis display, do it now. Um, and specifically, this is this the, the this is the jaw dropper for me. Total annual energy investment surge uh, in the in their scenario surges to five trillion a year U.S. dollars by 2030 in the net zero pathway, adding an extra 0.4 percentage points a year to global GDP, and that's based on joint analysis with the International Monetary Fund. So this is serious global economics, and it's real and it's happening. So can I ask something else about this, which is? Um it connects to something else that happened in the course of the last week. So when Fatih Birol spoke today, he made a specific point of saying that this is based on existing technology that is out there at the moment that is ready to scale. And I don't know yep. why he said that, but one potential reason why he said that is that also during the last week, Special Envoy John Kerry, who's recent guest on this podcast, went on the Andrew Marr show on the BBC in the UK. And he said 50% of the emissions reductions that we need to deliver will have to come from technology that we have not yet invented. And I've seen quite a bit of confusion on social media and quite a few people have reached out saying, what, you know, what? I thought we had a lot of technology. How come we're now saying that it has to be invented? So my read on that is that John Kerry was kind of perhaps slightly clumsily giving an indication that we're on a pathway and that innovation and entrepreneurship will keep coming to help us and will provide additional technology that make emissions reduction cheaper. But I don't think he's right that half the emissions that we need to get will come from technology that has to be invented yet. What do you, how do you guys understand this issue? Well, I, I think um, Kerry is probably talking about um, competitive CZS, carbon capture and storage, mm. and um, because that's still pretty expensive and somewhat unsafe, or at least we don't know what the risks are. So I think maybe he was talking about that. 
Um, I, I do think it was a little bit in the, uh, how should I call it? <laughs> Unknown territory. And actually quite surprising for, for John Kerry, who has always been such a staunch uh believer that we can actually do this and do it in a timely fashion. So I don't know what was going through his uh, his mind at that point. Um, but uh, can I ask you to uh, a question? Hmm. I would love to hear the two of you speculate on what happened inside the IEA, why this absolutely dramatic shift. This is not a gradual change. They were moving in this direction and here. No, this is a dramatic shift for them. I'd love to hear some speculation because it can only be that about what happened that there is such a dramatic shift. That's a very good question. After you, Paul. Well, um, we have the great privilege uh, in a moment to interview the Secretary General of the North Atlantic Treaty Organization responsible for the armed forces of the world's democracies. And that individual wants to talk to us about climate change. You can't get any more serious in terms of global security than the Secretary General of NATO talking to us about climate change. This is an absolutely potentially catastrophic issue for our planet and it's a moment where we can pull together and fix things and it's that serious and the IEA system and I think the ministers represented have sort of thought okay yep that's true and there's no point not telling the public about this we're going to make it public and that's what they've done yeah I mean I think that Christiana you know this better than anyone but there exists in the life of any institution, a gray area in its authority. I mean, you used to say this to me when you were running the UNFCCC, right? The, the authority given to you as the executive secretary was slim, and then you would test the edges and you would press the boundaries and you would push your authority further out to get delivered what you needed to be delivered. And I think that what must have happened, and again, it's speculation, but Fatih Birol is super smart. He's known what we're facing for a long time. But I think that he found or others in the organization found or he was encouraged or the, the courage to stretch the field of the authority that he felt he could take inside that institution. And as he stretched that, he's basically taken a risk in doing mm -hmm. this and deciding that he's going to step out, he's going to take more authority and he's going to lead and he's going to take, this is a real departure, right? The, I, the future of the IEA is different from the past as of today. In the past, Correct. it was basically an entity that was representing the interests of oil producers, because that's where it came from. And now it seems to be trying to represent the future and be clear about what we're capable of doing. And that's, I think, down to a human choice somewhere in there. And I don't know who or where or how, but a human choice was made to do something differently and stretch the authority, recreate the future. And that's really inspiring, actually. I hadn't quite thought about it in those terms till you asked the question. What do you think happened? That's my question to you, Christiana. I've, I've been thinking about it since yesterday. Um, I think probably a combination of things. Probably, uh, as Paul has said, a much higher recognition of the danger and the threat, uh, both to our natural environment as well as to our peace and um, economic development, for sure. I don't think, you know, in, in the universe's sense of 
humor and purpose. I don't think it is totally coincidental that this amazing documentary is coming out, Breaking Boundaries, because uh, it, it's coming out in just a few weeks. And had the IEA report come out after that, we would have said, aha, here's a direct <laughs> link. But, you know, there's probably an indirect link there because the science has become so much clearer. I think there's also a reading of the sentiment of public and political sentiment that is definitely shifting. And perhaps that gave them that space that you're talking about, Tom, that space and that courage to say, you know, do we want to be the last one standing? Because yeah. up until now, they were the last one standing. Or do we want to be the first ones illuminating the future, the first ones in the energy sector? That's, and I think that decision was um, was made, um, reading public sentiment. And geopolitically, do you think the fact that the United States has a different occupant in the Oval Office didn't have a yeah, uh, some ah, kind of yeah. an influence on this? Yeah. I, you know... Um, Let's remember that it's the governments who are um, members of uh, of um, of the IEA and of the OECD. The United States is by far the largest member of the IEA in terms of uh, government and presumably budgetary contribution. And governance. Uh, and, you know, uh, I wouldn't be surprised if perhaps under, you know, all of this stress that we have produced for IEA over the past four years specifically, I wouldn't be surprised that they just felt like we don't have any oxygen because, you know, the governance of this institution is such that the United States holds a controlling voice here. And I wouldn't be surprised if all of a sudden, you know, the IEA felt there's this oxygen mask that has just dropped in front of their face and they go, grab it. Yeah. finally. Yeah. We can say <gasps> what we know we need to say. Mm. So all of the above. And big credit there to to the to to John Kerry and of course the whole you know U.S. force in in global uh, uh, politics. And I, I mentioned that specifically because to your point about John Kerry speaking about technologies that don't exist, it's a it's a bit of a throwaway thought here. But we said at the very top of the show that there's going to be massive change, particularly in the oil and gas industry. Exploration and production for new oil and gas is, is pretty much gone now, um, I hope and believe. But that doesn't mean that there isn't a huge industry in carbon capture and storage, particularly biomass carbon capture and storage, pumping down, pulling down out of the atmosphere and into the Earth's crust, hundreds of billions of tonnes of CO2. That's something that same industry can do. And maybe that's what Kerry was pointing to. Who knows? Hmm. Could be. So we have an amazing interview for you today. Anything to say before we move on to the interview? So Can excited. I add one more thing? Yeah, go on. One more factor that I think <laughs> had something to do with it. Um, this, is, this is the head of the energy industry, but the financial industry also reached that conclusion yep. a while ago. Yep. And so, you know, I think they're also following the money and realizing if they don't <laughs> get on board here, they're really going to be the last one standing because the financial world has moved, science has moved, technology has moved, geopolitics has moved. Maybe they should also move. So I think all of that put together has come together uh, for um, for this amazing and very, very welcome shift. And I will confess that I cried 
yesterday when I read the, um, the summary. I was so excited to see this massive shift of the IEA. But the, Glo- the Glasgow Financial Alliance for Net Zero, Mark Carney, just a, a couple of weeks ago, or last week was talking about, you know, how, how as you said, Christiana, the money's there, the ministers are there, you've cried in a good way, I think. That was a happy crying, right? And now, well, the sky's the limit. Right. So we're going to go to the interview in a minute, but just before we do, um, we have thoroughly enjoyed, and one of the best <laughs> parts of our week has been reading our listener comments that arrive. Oh, someone's smiling it's, on screen. It's because I know what you're going to say. Via the different, know, via the different formats. And we've got a great one for you this week. This is from Georgina in Yorkshire in the UK. Georgina. And she says, Outrage and optimism is one of the best parts of my week. It's been a mm-hmm. game changer for me in terms of increasing mm-hmm. my awareness of the complexity of climate crisis, uh-huh. but also staying focused on the positive and believing we have the solutions. And we have clay. I oh. bet I'm not the only one with a secret crush. Thanks, guys. Uh-huh. Love you. <laughs> that voice. <laughs> that smooth, wow. silky voice reading the credits at the end. Clay, yeah, can, you yeah. say, can you say thank you, Georgina, when you're on the most smoky voice? Oh, well, no. But I did have a dream as a child that when I would grow up, I would be very famous all around the world. And I have to say, this makes me feel like I'm kind of on my way. You are. Yeah. yeah you're getting fan mail uh, from your show. Yeah. Yeah. But, but, really, but really, I just want to say I'm so grateful that someone is listening to the credits. <laughs> it's making me very happy. Very happy. This, yeah. This review made me very happy. So thank you, Georgina, for listening to the podcast. And thank you for listening to the credits. Thanks, Georgina. Right, moving on to the interview. Great. So we have an amazing interview for you today. This is something completely different to anything that we've ever done before and an incredible human being. You're going to absolutely love this. Jens Stoltenberg is the first Norwegian to become Secretary General of the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, NATO. Of course, one of the most important security organizations in the world, born out of the Second World War. Um, Jens himself has this amazing background. He was born into a political family, Um, and um, his father was a diplomat and then Minister of Defence and Minister of Foreign Affairs. And these amazing stories from his background, his father believed in practising what he called kitchen table diplomacy, and he'd invite others that he was speaking to and engaging with, friends he called them to the family home, serve them breakfast, and talk as the family ate breakfast, encouraging the kids to ask questions. So as Jens was a child... Guests at the breakfast table included people like Nelson Mandela and many other notable international freedom fighters. And he grew up thinking that this was the normal diplomatic process, which is kind of an amazing indicator of how he then went on to become a statesman and a diplomat himself. And Tom, you've forgotten one piece. Yes. He's also your personal hero. Your His father, Jens's father, is your personal hero because of the way he decided on the education of his children. Can that's, you please tell us about that? That's true. So Christiana's teasing me because um, I'm sure like many listeners and parents, I obsess a little bit over how to educate my children. And I've always chosen to do it in a slightly unconventional way. We've homeschooled for periods of time. We've traveled. They go to slightly alternative schools where I live here in Devon. And Jens himself went to a Waldorf or a Steiner school, which is not where I send my kids. But um, it's also interesting that he did go to a school like that. And he was later asked what that form of education had given him. And he always said, what it gave me was a desire to become a better human being throughout my life. So I think that's also kind of an amazing story about education. Thank you, Christiana. 
<laughs> Christian stopped me from asking Jens constant questions about education when we talked to him earlier. So as I said, uh, before that slight aside, uh, he is currently the Secretary General of NATO. He's held that position since 2014. His term will expire in 2022. Uh, before NATO, as you'll hear when Christiana opens in the conversation, he was the UN Special Envoy for Climate Change. And prior to that, he was elected as Prime Minister of Norway twice, 2000 and 2005. And during his tenure, interestingly, at NATO, he's been working specifically to drive the issue of climate change up the agenda. He spoke at the Leader Summit on Climate convened by Joe Biden just a few weeks ago. And as you will hear again in this conversation, he is making plans for the NATO summit in June and climate change will play a role. So we'll be back afterwards. Here is Jens Stoltenberg. Secretary General, uh, thank you so much for spending some time with us here on Outrage and Optimism. If I may be so brazen, I will call you Jens because I've known you before you were Secretary General. In fact, I, we worked quite closely together uh, in uh, the lead up to the Paris Agreement when you were UN Special Envoy for Climate Change. And, uh, and, and, and once again, thank you so much for everything that you did uh, to get us to where we did in 2015. But today you are the Secretary General of, uh, of NATO, and we are so delighted to see that in your trajectory in NATO, you have not stepped away from your commitment to address climate change. In fact, you have uh, presided over the publication of NATO 2030, which is your groundbreaking report where you cite climate change explicitly as a direct threat to NATO's operations and national and international security. Now, here's my question, Jens. How do you square the following circle? It is the responsibility of NATO, of course, to have a firm military defense, let's say now against Russian and Chinese military action in the high north. And, however, at the same time, you understand, perhaps better than any other previous Secretary General of NATO, that climate change truly is such a threat to national and international security. And you know that we're not going to address climate change unless we do it in a collaborative fashion among all countries together. So how do you square the circle of a mental building up of a wall to protect and defend the territory for which you are responsible, while at the same time reaching out beyond those boundaries to the likes of Russia and China and others from which we need a very active collaboration in order to address climate change. How do you do both things at the same time? I think it is absolutely possible because I think that uh, both uh, NATO allies, uh, Russia, China and, uh, and uh, all other major powers in the world, they really understand. And that's the big breakthrough with the Paris Accord is that they really understand that uh, climate change, global warming is an existential uh, threat to all of us. And therefore, uh, despite all our differences, despite disagreements and sometimes also conflict, uh, uh, on all the areas, we need to work together uh, uh, addressing climate change. It's a truly global challenge and it can also only be solved when we work together. So 
So there are many big problems in the world, uh, but but when it comes to climate change, actually what we have seen is that uh, we have been able to to prevent them from standing uh, um, to destroying our ability uh, to work uh, together uh, addressing climate change. And uh, and for me the biggest demonstration of that uh, is the Paris uh, Agreement. So I'm quite optimistic when it comes to our ability to overcome other differences and at the same time, but, but working together on addressing climate change. And, and Jens, since 2015, when that agreement was adopted, have you had the opportunity slash the responsibility um, to actually bring, let's, let's call it right now, those two big military powers to bring them beyond a traditional NATO standoff position um, in order to collaborate on climate, for example, in, uh, in the Arctic? So I think that NATO has an important role to address climate change. Um, uh, we need to, first of all, understand uh, how uh, global warming affects uh, our security and everything that matters for our security matters for NATO. Uh, global warming, climate change uh, is a crisis multiplier and, uh, and therefore we need to address it. Um, um, I also think that NATO has a role uh, in adapting uh, to climate change and also helping to reduce emissions. But I don't think that NATO is the platform to, in a way, uh, uh, negotiate with China or with Russia uh, uh, big climate agreements. I think that will only confuse the responsibilities uh, with the responsibilities of the UN and all those who are working uh, within the UN framework for uh, uh, on addressing climate change. So, so, so NATO has an important role, uh, but not in a way to replace or to uh, start to sit down and negotiate. Uh, climate change agreements with Russia. I think we should focus on arms control and uh, and those issues when we talk to Russia or with uh, China. Hmm. But, but that would lead me to think that you don't think that NATO has a role in climate change, but you do know that it does. So how, how would you define that role of so, NATO on climate change? I strongly believe that we have a role to play in three ways. First, to set the gold standard when it comes to understanding the consequences of climate change on our security. Uh, more extreme weather, more droughts, flooding, uh, heat waves, all of that will affect uh, our security, partly because it will force people to move migration. And it's obvious that that affects our security. It will fuel uh, conflicts, uh, conflicts many places in the world. Second, uh, we have to adapt. Because to be effective uh, in delivering deterrence and defense, which is our core and main responsibility, we need to make sure that our uh, soldiers can operate in extreme weather conditions. We have, for instance, a NATO training mission in Iraq uh, helping to fight uh, Daesh or ISIS. Uh, last year, it was there were several weeks with more than 40 degrees uh, Celsius, uh, uh, extreme heat. And NATO forces have to be able to fight, to train, to operate in these uh, extreme weather conditions, meaning uh, it will impact our exercises, our equipment. We need planes, uh, trucks, uh, uh, all other uh, also, uh, uh, equipment to be able to function under extreme weather conditions. More rain, windy, wet, wet, uh, wetter weather, uh, we need to be able to, uh, to operate. So that's adaptation of NATO. And the third thing, is that we uh, have a responsibility to contribute to reductions of emissions. Uh, uh, back in Kyoto, I was in Kyoto back in 1997, I remember we exempted 
military from any uh, uh, national reporting on uh, uh, emissions. It was not oh. part of the Kyoto Agreement. It was in, as a, as explicitly exempted from the agreement. <laughs> uh, um, uh, now, <laughs> that was not the case in Paris, but we have a long way to go to make sure that our militaries are contributing to uh, reduction in uh, in emissions. If we look at uh, battle tanks or battleships and so on, they can be very impressive, but they're not very green, uh, at least not normally. <laughs> so, so they're not they are not constructed to be, uh, you know, uh, 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 emitting as little as possible. They are there to protect us. So we need to to reconcile the need for green and uh, and effective uh, uh, military equipment uh, and uh, thereby reducing emissions, but also uh, uh, increasing the resilience of our uh, military operations. Mm-hmm. Jens, if I can just jump in, that's so interesting to hear you set that out. And thank you for explaining that three-step strategy as part of NATO's response to climate change. Can I just dig in on the first point? Because you talked about, you know, understanding the consequences of climate change for our world as that will affect future conflict that is happening now. And you gave some examples there around how we're already seeing that. And I'd just like to ask about the connection from that to the world finding the tenacity and the determination to actually deal with this in a timely fashion. Most of the analysis, the the economic analysis on whether we deal with climate change is based on a very narrow set of criteria. You know, what's the cost of gas and what's the cost of solar? And it kind of compares these things in a very simplistic way. What they don't do is incorporate the cost of a world that is going to be rife with conflict, the cost of this major change to our entire security landscape. And if there was a way of incorporating those elements into our economics or indeed into our understanding of human suffering, it it, it becomes even more of a no-brainer that we need to change our world incredibly quickly to one that can deal with the climate crisis. So I'm just wondering... Do you see it as part of your role to help people make that link to sort of say, look out, if we keep going down this road, it's not just about collapse of ecosystems, but there's going to be conflict everywhere and use that as a driver to get people to make the right decisions now while we still can. Yeah, that, that's that's very much uh, uh, the point is that um, I think that the link between uh, climate change and security is yet an other argument for taking climate change seriously and to do something with it. For many people, that's a good thing. Is that uh, is that they don't need more arguments because it's so obvious that climate change uh, is a big and real problem. Uh, but uh, but uh, but uh, but it's always as I say, good to underpin uh, and to further strengthen the arguments for doing something with uh, climate change. And uh, and uh, we still have uh, some countries, some some political forces, which are a bit. Uh, hesitant when it comes to to realizing the dangers related to climate change, and then if you can add on top on all the other arguments that actually this is also uh, important for our security, it it adds to the urgency and importance of addressing uh, climate change. Uh, and, and of course, I, I I one of the reasons I believe, for instance, in economic tools uh, addressing uh, uh, or, or to help to reduce emissions is that. You can appeal to, in a way, the idealism uh, of uh, companies and people, but uh, uh, in the long run, if it is, what should I say, profitable to be, uh, to act and 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 behave uh, in an environmentally friendly way, I think that more people will do it. And in the same mm. way, if you can uh, tell people that you you help to protect your own security, you have to you you, you reduce the, the risk for conflicts uh, and uh, and war, and not least you reduce the uh, the risk for uh, even bigger uh, challenges related to migration, uh, 
uh, by addressing mm-hmm. climate change, you you will motivate more people, more political forces to engage uh, in the fight against climate change. And I, I'm really curious. I know Paul wants to come in, so so just very quick follow up to that. I'm curious to know about your own experience in the corridors of power. I mean, you're someone who talks to foreign ministers, defence ministers, heads of state. You ask them about these questions. You must say to them, look, we need to deal with climate change or else this security issue is going to become even more acute. Does that argument land with them? Does, do they make that link? Do they, do, they, do they buy that? And does it lead to decision making in a different way? Yes, they buy it. Uh, uh, and uh, and I think many things have changed over just the last few years. Uh, 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 all NATO allies now realize dangers uh, uh, with climate change. All NATO allies have actually signed the Paris Accord. I mean, we, we had the US uh, left the Paris Accord, but now they're back again. So meaning that 30 NATO allies have all signed uh, uh, that agreement. Um, uh, so so allies are on board. They understand the link uh, and... Uh, and uh, and and uh, and we are now preparing for the upcoming NATO summit uh, on the 14th of June. Uh, and uh, uh, Christiana mentioned uh, the the NATO 2030, which is the project, the kind of initiative we have to to to, to modernize and to renew uh, NATO. And uh, one of the proposals there is to make climate change one of the uh, important decisions uh, allies, uh, heads of state and government, will make when they meet in Brussels. Mm. Secretary General Jens. Uh, there is a question that fascinates me about the what I'm going to call a, a kind of competition, a healthy competition, perhaps even of ideologies. You know, you've observed that uh, NATO is constantly adapting and modernizing. That's why it's been the most successful uh, alliance uh, in history. But it's more than a defensive shield. It exists to ensure freedom and prosperity in which sovereign countries thrive. You know, and, and NATO is a democratic force. I mean, China's been doing some some great work in response to climate change. But generally, I think the performance of one-party states is is not so good, particularly if we consider Russia to be such a, a governmental system. So I ask you, how can we promote responding to climate change as a project embracing the priorities of security, but also democracy and freedom? How can NATO promote climate change leadership by the 50% of the world economy uh, that your members represent, uh, almost in, in, in terms of uh, proving our core beliefs and, and our effectiveness as societies? Sometimes I I believe we should not make things too complicated. Uh, so I am concerned about climate change uh, 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 in a way, regardless of uh, my commitment to democracy, the rule of law, the core values uh, uh, of uh, of NATO. I'm saying that because I think we need to realize that to be able to do something real about climate change, we need to work also together with authoritarian regimes, regimes that in no way share our values. Uh, uh, like China, like like, like Russia. Uh, so I will stand up for democracy, the rule of law, uh, uh, NATO's core values. And I really believe that that's the reason why NATO was founded. But to, in a way, to make the, the one uh, a kind of condition on the other, I think will just complicate the very urgent need mm-hmm. to do something real on climate change uh, as uh, as quickly as possible, so so uh, so from, I'm not linking those two issues too much. Uh, just to make sure that we are really making progress on both of them, uh, yeah, on China uh, or, or on climate change, we need to work with uh, and, and make agreements with a lot of nations we normally don't this uh, we don't uh, agree so much with. 
So, so that's a brilliant answer from from uh, an international statesperson. So I salute you there. But if I can ask just one more tricky question, you, you have spoken before about the challenge to our democracies from, for example, uh, um, uh, you know, uh, foreign elements, you know, wishing to interfere with our electoral processes or whatever. Um, there may be a case of them sometimes undermining science of climate change, even in in a strange alliance with people within NATO member countries. And I just wondered to what degree, you know, you thought that there was a, a role for NATO to have a, an awareness of um, the security issue of the integrity of our public debate regarding climate change. Yeah, that's the task for NATO, uh, to, to, to make sure that we have uh, cyber defenses, that we have intelligence, uh, which helps to protect us against uh, any attempt to interfere in our domestic political processes or undermine the trust in our democratic institutions. And again, that's something I believe in regardless of climate change, because I believe in the importance of people being able to elect their own leaders and, uh, and to have transparent uh, uh, democratic institutions and, uh, and, uh, and uh, independent free press and uh, which can provide us with facts and uh, and uh, and uh, reliable uh, information, um, and of course, if anyone tries to interfere in our democratic processes and uh, and uh, spread information uh, which is undermining uh, scientific uh, knowledge about the danger of climate change, then of course NATO should help to prevent that from happening because we we are there to protect our free and open societies but but we should, again we should not make this too complicated because the reality is that uh, some of those countries which we have seen trying to inter in, interfere in our democratic processes they at least accept that climate change is an issue again china is mm -hmm. the best example I'm very concerned about what China uh, does when it comes to democratic values, uh, uh, oppression of democratic forces in Hong Kong, uh, the way they treat uh, minorities, the Uyghurs in, in, in China, or, or the way they violate international law, uh, hamper freedom of navigation in the South China Sea. But despite of that, we have been able to make big and beautiful agreements with China on, on <laughs> climate change. So, so, we, so, so we should not make it more complicated. We should try to work on the separate issues uh, and uh, work also with uh, countries we normally disagree with. Mm -hmm. and, and keep them separate. That's interesting because I guess in the back of our mind uh, was, you know, can climate change actually be a good um, playground to exercise more multilateralism? And I think what you're saying is, yes, as long as we don't confuse um, the issues. Um, Jens, you mentioned the forthcoming NATO summit. Um, I, I would love to know what you expect other than than the many, let's say, more traditional issues that you will be dealing with at the NATO summit. What do you expect as a result on climate change? And secondly, would that result help to elevate the attention of the UN Security Council on climate change. You know that many attempts have been done uh, to, to bring climate change to the attention of the Security Council, and many of us feel that there is not enough or deep enough attention to climate change at the Security Council level. So, um, so first for the NATO summit, and then is there any possibility to raise the issue it, at, the, uh, at the SEC Council? I expect that when the heads of state and government, uh, uh, when uh, President Biden, Prime Minister Johnson and, uh, and all the other uh, leaders in NATO allied countries meet in Brussels on the 14th of June, they will make many important decisions, but one of the important decisions they will make uh, uh, will be decisions on climate change. 
And uh, I have put forward proposals, which is actually based on the three elements uh, I just outlined. We need to understand, analyze uh, the the link between uh, climate change and um, and security. Uh, uh, we need, for instance, better statistics, uh, better data, because we don't have uh, good enough data when it comes to, for instance, emissions from uh, uh, military uh, forces. Uh, second, we need a program um, uh, uh, on how to adapt uh, NATO uh, and our military forces uh, to uh, global warming. And thirdly, we need actually concrete uh, commitments to reduce emissions from military operations. We are now working on uh, on that decision, so I cannot reveal the exact language because that is under negotiation, uh, because it's not finished. Uh, but but I, I, I have told allies that, you know, we should reduce emissions from our military operations because it, it will help to reduce the, the risk of global warming, but also because in the long run, I'm absolutely certain that it will increase the effectiveness of our military forces. How's that? How's that, Jens? Because if we end up with a military uh, force or, 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 or military equipment, which is totally based on fossil fuel, which they are today, and the rest of the society move towards greener, uh, uh, new uh, uh, technologies, uh, electric vehicles, we will be stuck with old-fashioned technology. So, 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 I mean, if you look at electric cars, they're not only environmentally friendly, but they're more and more the best cars. And that will also be the case with battle tanks, with, uh, with fighter jets, with, with, uh, with uh, 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 so battleships. So Winston Churchill is known for many things, but he was uh, he's recognized for being able to, to, to turn the, the British Navy from coal to, to oil before the uh, First World War, which is regarded as a huge step forward for the, the speed, the, 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 the fighting capability of the British Navy. And we are now in the same kind of energy transition. We're moving away from fossil fuels in the rest of society. And that will impact uh, also uh, the way we uh, uh, conduct uh, military uh, operations. And I would like Mm. NATO allies to be in the forefront of that transition, not Mm. only because I'm concerned about climate change, but because I'm concerned about that NATO has to maintain its technological edge have the most modern and advanced uh, uh, um, uh, military uh, uh, equipment, uh, and therefore we should focus on how we can do that. One example is Afghanistan. We know that one of the Mm -hmm. most vulnerable things we have done in Afghanistan is to actually transport fossil fuels to our military operations. Um, So if we can reduce the dependency on fossil fuels, we are reducing emissions, but we're also increasing the resilience uh, of our military uh, operations because we don't have yes. to do this very dangerous transportation of fossil fuels long distance to to fuel uh, aggregates or to uh, f- to provide fuel to to battle tanks or or armored vehicles or whatever. So, so to reconcile the need for green and effective uh, uh, armed forces is actually to be at the forefront of the technological technological development, and there uh, that, that's exactly where NATO should be. And I hope that then uh, I expect NATO allies to 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 actually make bold decisions on this uh, 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 at the at the summit uh, in uh, in June. Then on the Security Council, I'm I'm a bit uh, so. F- <laughs> I, I strongly believe that the UN should take this very seriously. Uh, uh, I welcome the fact that the UN has been a driving force for the climate conventions. Uh, uh, going back to, to the 
climate convention also in Rio in 1992, uh, uh, and all the way with the different uh, protocols, and now with a with a Paris uh, agreement. Um, but the Security uh, Council is a shining example of not taking this responsibility. Yet of the whole UN. Yet. No, but yet. Uh, so okay. I'm a bit. Uh, I understand that, but I'm. A, I, but my main focus is how to make sure that NATO is uh, uh, leading. How NATO can do more as as an alliance. And I'm a bit afraid of giving too many advice to another international organization, uh, the UN. Uh, but I can I can tell you that in my previous position as a special uh, envoy. Um, envoy on climate change, uh, of course, I was very much uh, uh, engaged in how we could uh, make sure that the UN and including the UN Security Council stepped up in when it comes to addressing climate yeah. change. Well, we're certainly hoping that after this NATO summit that there will be a ripple effect over to Security Council. Now, obviously... Uh, very important members of the Security Council are not allies of uh, of NATO, but we're hoping that there's going to be um, some ripple effect because, as you well point out, and NATO 2030 report points out, it truly is a global threat to national and international security, for which the Security Council is the ultimate authority. Yeah. Absolutely. Mm. Jens, could I take you to a different stakeholder group that you have actively reached out to, I think, quite uh, quite amazingly, and that is to uh, young people, because you encouraged uh, your young leaders group to put together their own NATO 2030 report entitled, I believe, Embrace the Change and Guard the Values. Um, what, was there anything, f- first of all, what led you to reach out to that stakeholder group? I think quite unusual for, for NATO. And was anything there in that conversation that truly surprised you? Or was everything that they put on the table already predictable from your perspective? First of all, I think it's always important to, uh, to talk to young people. The problem is that I regard myself as a young man for many, many decades. Um, <laughs> I love that, love that. But now I realize that I'm not young anymore. So then I need to organize uh, 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 ways to reach out to young people. And uh, and uh, and I think that 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 is important but also, also because the decisions we uh, make today, they will of course, affect what kind of world uh, the young people uh, today will li- live up in and, 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 and be forced or, or they have to manage uh, for good or for bad in, in the future. Um, um, perhaps not so big surprises, but they were very focused on, uh, on climate change, on exactly the issues we discussed now. It's actually one of the reasons why we have made climate change such an important part of NATO 2030 is uh, the very clear input we got from, uh, from young people. Because climate change has been the NATO agenda for some years. So we actually agreed back in 2010 that climate change had uh, security consequences, but it, it has never been prominent uh, on the NATO agenda. Mm-hmm. That is changing now, uh, uh, partly because we see urgency, partly because it's, it's, it's so obvious that it has uh, security consequences, and also partly because we see that we need to adapt and and to mitigate uh, 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 emissions. Uh, but the outreach to young people has, in a way, uh, enforced that uh, movement towards uh, setting or putting climate change higher on the NATO agenda and, and not only um, having it higher on the agenda, but actually try to agree some actions that we have to uh, implement to make sure that we deliver uh, on uh, the fight against climate change. 
So Jens, as we move towards our final question that we ask all guests, I just wanted to make an observation about why we, why I think our listeners are so supportive of, of, of your leadership. You know, both the scientific community and I believe the, the, the security community are allowing us as societies to really think about the long term, which is very often neglected. Uh, I, I love to spend time sometimes with trustees of pension funds. We spoke to Thomas DiNapoli of the New York State Common Retirement Fund, who said he's, he, he's an investor forever. But I, I, I just wanted to really uh, thank you for, for that long term perspective and, 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 and encourage you to continue to bring it with ever greater clarity and force to the world. I can promise that I will do that, but it's not only long term because this is this is happening now. Climate change yeah. is not a kind of theoretical thing or a threat that may happen in the future. It's 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 taking place as we speak right now. Yeah, people are forced to 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 move. We have droughts. We have more extreme weather, and 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 I so in the Arctic we see that the the ice is melting because back in the 1980s when I started to work on some of these issues, climate change was kind of something we we were. Believing that might happen in the future, we thought that could happen in the future, and we need very advanced models to try to predict uh, the possibility of climate change. Now you don't need; uh, it is good to have models uh, and to try to to understand the, the the scale of climate change in the future. But climate change is a fact; uh, it's something which is happening, and and it's possible to see with your own eyes, especially in the high north. Uh, so and, and and for the NATO soldiers operating in Iraq, I think to have so many days with more than forty degrees uh, above uh, uh, Celsius, you know, this is climate change. Uh, so yes, it's long term, but it's also uh, uh, very immediate, and that's also the reason why we all have to uh, uh, react and act, uh, and also our armed uh, uh, forces. Yeah, it's an immediate emergency. But it means a great deal. To hear the Secretary General of NATO say that on our podcast. Thank you. Sorry, Christiana. No, and I was just going to um, suggest, if I may, Jens, just to see how urgent this is, um, if I could make a little humble suggestion for you and your team to watch a documentary that is soon coming out, June 4th, on Netflix, Breaking Boundaries, probably the most important uh, documentary that has ever been filmed and that really explains from a scientific point of view what you have just stated, how much of an emergency we're in, not just on climate, but also on all of the other um, boundaries. So if you needed scientific proof for your sense of urgency, there you are. Uh, Jens, thank you so much for uh, for spending this time, for illuminating us. Thank you in particular for this leadership um, at uh, at NATO that is has been well, I'm missing for such a long time. So thank you very much for that. As we close, we always ask our guests um, mm -hmm. to place themselves on a spectrum uh, between optimism and, and outrage. We believe that we need both. Uh, but we always ask our guests where, if, if you see from a spectrum between optimism and what we can do and frustration or outrage, uh, that it has taken us this long to get to where we are, where where would you place Jens Stoltenberg? Uh, 
Uh, first of all, I agree with you that we need both optimism and outrage because outrage is in a few fueling action. Uh, uh, having said that, I I am more on the optimist side, uh, uh, partly because I have seen such a huge shift in the political sentiment. Uh, again, comparing to where we were uh, in the 90s, for instance, where we where, where many allies or many countries didn't want to sign the Kyoto uh, the, uh, the Kyoto Agreement at all, and 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 it was only covered a small part of of the emissions in the world uh, uh, now. Uh, or, uh, the whole world has agreed and the whole world has signed up to something and, and things are starting to happening. And and the, re uh, the second reason is that we see now technological development, um, uh, especially when it comes to uh, new sources for energy, solar, uh, wind, which 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 is, you know, now it's now it's actually commercial. It's profitable. Uh, mm -hmm. So even if you don't yep. care care about climate change, you should invest in this technology. Cheaper than coal. Cheaper than coal. So, so <laughs> then then th change will happen. And 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 based on what we have seen before, when things start to happen, they happen much more quickly than expected. It's a kind of tipping point. And I think we are mm. very much on that tipping point or close to that tipping point now, where uh, new environmentally friendly energies will just be more competitive than the old uh, 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 polluting uh, technologies. Uh, so technology has been so important in all other transitions, and it will be it also this time. So I am uh, more on the, also I'm, I'm, I'm optimist, but we need some outrage and, and some frustration because that will, uh, as I say, help us to to move on and uh, and keep up the pace. Mm -hmm. Jens Stoltenberg, Secretary General of NATO, thank you so much for joining on this outrage and optimism. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Thanks. Bye. So how wonderful to get a chance to sit down with Jens Stoltenberg, Secretary General of NATO, and what an amazing analysis. And it just shows you that the climate issue can be viewed from so many lenses. And it's mm. now that it's reached this moment, everybody is an ally and you can find people in the most unusual places and they're thinking about climate from different angles and you always learn something. What did you leave that conversation with? Um, I, I was really amused at the fact that I really tried to lead him in a certain direction and he just completely shut the door on me. <laughs> but I mean, the, the, the where I was going with this was, was um, you know, I associate NATO essentially with... Um, the, the Cold War um, and actually the competition between the West, if you will, and the, the USSR, the Soviet Union. And I actually think that those that competition of ideologies was quite interesting and quite important because I, I believe that after the Berlin Wall fell, somebody said that the you know West Germany didn't have a mirror to, to say I am the better of the two or something. I, I actually think that a lot of problems with modern capitalism happened when the Berlin Wall fell because the West was no longer in a kind of a competition, a moral or ideological competition, an ethical competition with with a, with an other, right? So I wanted to see if if uh, the Secretary General would 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 be willing to characterize. Um, the competition we have to decarbonize our societies as something uniquely kind of to do with democracy and 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 the and the rule of law and 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 the open society and uh, computer said no actually and uh, that's he wasn't interested in talking about that he said he wrote me off so absolutely brilliantly I really admire him for it he says why make it more complicated <laughs> fair answer that was fair sort of his point. answer to both your questions. <laughs> Okay, so call me complication guy if you want to, but uh, but no, I mean, you know, he's not got the simplest job in the world. 
I was taken um, by uh, yet again the the breadth of the implications of climate change because we spent yeah. much of the time speaking about the threats, the security and military threats that um, climate change poses. But he also went into that, I would say, the macro view. He also went into the micro view. And I was so grateful that he did because I, I remember having visited the Pentagon several times in the run-up to um, the Paris Agreement in our quest for broader and broader support for an ambitious agreement. And it was at those Pentagon meetings that I learned that the U.S. Army, and apparently it's not the only one, was already then moving over to renewable energy for their military stations that are at a certain distance because of exactly what the Secretary General said, because having to transport liquid fossil fuels over long distances very often uh, very close to enemy territory and taking it to what they call the theater, which is where they actually have their um, have their battles, is, is A, very expensive because of the transport and B, mm. very dangerous. So they have to have these huge tankers that transport this fuel over long distances, plus they have to be accompanied with a whole bunch of other vehicles that are protecting the fuel vehicles, making it very dangerous, um, and very expensive. And to switch from that to putting up solar panels and creating much of the energy that, um, that is needed uh, on site, that doesn't obviously take care of vehicles yet, but it will soon. But I was really struck way back then about, wow, you know, the renewable energy, because it is so distributed, because it can be produced where it is used, supply and demand can actually coexist right there in the same, in this, in the same space, um, just completely changes, radically changes the logic of fuel, fueling, and dependence on fuels. And I was I was thrilled that he referred to that. Hadn't had he not referred to it, I would have asked him. But clearly, I learned about it as I say from the U.S. Army. But clearly, it's not just the U.S. Army. It is other armies that have discovered that that is a way to cut down on costs and cut down on risk. Yeah. No, I remember our old friend Paul Neil Morissetti from the the British Army um, telling me mm -hmm. at one point from the British Pre Navy, former Rear Admiral Neil Morissetti, exactly telling me at one point a, that an the advisor to CDP. Sorry, I'm very proud that he's an advisor to CDP, distinguished uh, uh, record in climate change. Uh, uh, I'm very fond of Admiral Morissetti, and uh, he is yeah, a wonderful person. I remember him telling me that their destroyers did three inches to the gallon, and that was a real problem for them. I think that was an yeah. aircraft carrier when all the planes were flying. But right, yes, okay, it's, it's not too good. <laughs> three inches to the gallon, you don't want that. Um, but anyway, no, I, I completely agree with your analysis, Christiana. And I thought what was interesting there was when he drew that analogy with Churchill, shifting the ships over to the different yes. fuel source for the Second World War, made the Navy ready 
for the modern war as it was then. And he drew that analogy with basically saying renewable energy is just better. And it reminded me of sort of extreme E or other things where you just demonstrate that shifting over to renewables is just a better way to do what you're doing. In this case, of course, Mm. they're talking about military operations, which is, you know, complex to say the least in terms of whether that should be done, but it's necessary in many cases. Um, So, yeah, I thought that was really fascinating. I also thought it was interesting that we asked him about whether the argument that not taking action on climate will lead to future conflict landed with decision makers as they put their policies together. And his strong indication was that it did and that that was driving decision making. And who knows how that manifests in minister, ministerial decision making or, 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 or policy formulation. But he, clearly his perspective was that that was making a difference and that was landing. So I thought that was really fascinating as well. What, what an amazing guy. What a great life he's had you know to sort of come from where he's come from run norway and then be special envoy for climate and now run nato it must be fascinating how, how fortunate we are to have uh, yeah. as the head of nato some such a sort of thoughtful individual and i mean you know uh, I, I was born just 20 years after the end of world war ii really and uh, you know that was still something in living memory when i was growing up and that was pretty terrible time now the creation of uh, atomic weapons changed the nature of war and we've you know we haven't had and and i hope and believe we cannot have any kind of large scale conflict really anymore because of the nature of nuclear weapons but of course you have all these terrible proxy wars and all sorts all over the place but the point i want to make is the defense of our nations our national security is the ultimate obligation of the armed forces and I am just so glad that that, that 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 community are recognizing climate change, and particularly, and 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 uh, Secretary Diddle didn't back me off when I said um, that's both about protecting our uh, our societies uh, and the integrity of our debate from foreign influence. You know, if people are trying to undermine our democratic institutions or derange the debate on climate change, and uh, acknowledging that we have. Uh, similar threats from within our own countries, potentially undermining science and undermining action and recognizing that the security services have a role to make sure that we have a rational debate, I find very reassuring. Fantastic. Big smiles from Tom and Christiana. (laughs) Uh, Oh, it's a WhatsApp message. What did you write, you rats? (laughs) I see. After this PD monologue. I see. I Listeners, see. Christiana and I have been WhatsApping about the fact that we need to end the episode, but Paul was holding forth with this fascinating insight. I have a lot more here, actually. I bought some notes and a couple of my early poems. So, of, you know, well, you all of a sudden, actually, I'm off. sorry, listeners, we're going to have to wrap up. Yeah. Paul, you're going a bit long. Uh, Georgina's waiting for the credits. <laughs> thank you, Clay. Yeah, thank exactly. You. Yeah. Right. Uh, and I agree, exactly. So thank you very much, listeners. And uh, this evening for music... Uh, oh, sorry, Tom, Tom, Tom. No, please, introduce the musical act. I'll hand back to you, Tom. You do it so well. You have a clay-like voice. We'll get emails. <laughs> what? All right, well, that's the best we can all hope for. So this week, as ever, we are playing you out with a wonderful piece of music. We have an amazing artist this week, Milky Chance, are playing us out with their single, We Didn't Make It to the Moon. This is a song with an amazing story that is so relevant for our times. As ever, it will be introduced by the artist, and then you'll hear the music. Thanks for joining us. Stick around for Clay's credits. It's always worth it. And we'll see you next week. Bye. 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 (laughs) So the inspiration for this song was a one-hour taxi ride through London to a music studio in which the driver spent the whole time trying to convince us of his conspiracy theories, including the staged moon landing. 
When we asked him where he got all this information from, he said, Google, it's all written there. That made us question whether the abundance of information we find on the internet is only positive. How do we know what's true anymore? How do we educate ourselves properly? How can we learn to think critically and communicate transparently? Ultimately, how do we bring people together? It feels like that we have huge source of knowledge which we don't know how to navigate through. As artists, we've been given this unique opportunity to use our platform in trying to unite all kinds of people and their beliefs. So that's just one more reason for us to use our channel not only to share our music but to educate about important things like climate change and other social issues. Because we believe that communication is key to understand the complexity of all these problems that we have to face and understanding is key if you want to make a change.
There you go, another episode of Outrage and Optimism. I'm Clay, producer of this podcast, and welcome to the highly anticipated credits at the end of actually the longest episode we've ever done, so congratulations, you made it. The song you just heard was We Didn't Make It to the Moon by Milky Chance. Did you hear that bass line? Infectious. So I've been streaming more of their music this week. It's filled with more catchy choruses and lo-fi beeps and boops and all the good stuff. You've actually probably heard their song Stolen Dance before. I put a link to the music video on YouTube in the show notes. It's one of the most shazammed songs of all time and the music video for it has over 677 million views. I can say with a reasonable degree of certainty that you've been in a shop and heard it or heard it on the radio It's wildly popular. So go check that out. Thank you to Milky Chance for sharing the story behind this song and your amazing music. Listeners, go buy their music and they're going on tour this year. So check the dates in the show notes for that. Earlier on in the podcast, Christiana mentioned a documentary coming out June 4th called Breaking Boundaries. Um, Here at Global Optimism, we're starting to talk about doing an episode on it when it's released so i've included a link to it on netflix so you can tap the bell icon and be reminded when it is released so you can see it christiana's challenge to all of us when we watch this is to find a young person we know that we can watch it with so don't hesitate time is going to fly it's only a couple weeks away so click the link tap the bell icon call your nephew or niece And if they're not vaccinated, do what my family did during COVID and call each other and then all hit play at the same time and then just kind of text back and forth during the film. It's really fun. Highly recommend it. Okay. Outrage and Optimism is a global optimism production. Our executive producer is Sharon Johnson and our producer is Clay Carnell. Global Optimism is Sarah Law, Katie Bradford, Lara Richardson, Marina Mancilla Herman, Sophie McDonald, Freya Newman, Sarah Thomas, Sue Reed, and John Ward. And our hosts are Christiana Figueres, Paul Dickinson, and Tom Rivikarnak. Thank you so much to our guest this week, Secretary General of NATO, Jens Stoltenberg. And thank you to the team at NATO for the amazing audio and video feed for this podcast and social media you made this week sound and look great. Also, it's really cool to get emails from people at NATO because every email says unclassified. And uh, I'm thinking about adding unclassified to all of my emails so that they feel more important. Maybe I'll actually take email more seriously. And speaking of unclassified, Georgina, your secret crush is no longer a secret. Special shout out this week to Georgina from Yorkshire for the review. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast and writing us a review. Listeners, be more like Georgina from Yorkshire and leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. We read every single one. 
and sometimes we read them on the podcast. So thank you again, Georgina from Yorkshire. Okay, that is the credits for this week. I am going to go watch the unveiling of the new Ford F-150 all-electric truck. I don't know why they're unveiling a car at 9.30 p.m., but anywho, that's the credits. Next week, another episode coming your way, and it's always more fun when you're here. So hit subscribe, and we'll see you then.